This is the Wicked Problems and Circular Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Chris O'Strike. So I'm sitting down today with Jonathan Cohn, and he is an old friend and my primary editor, someone I have very deep respect for, very knowledgeable on a wide range of topics. I think it would be great if you could just tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Yeah, happy to, happy to do it. Thank you so much for having me on. So my name is Jonathan Cohn. I live in Boston, Massachusetts, in the, in the U.S. I wear a number of different hats. So kind of professionally, I work as a managing editor. I have what I describe as a sustainability think tank called the TELUS Institute, particularly for TELUS's Great Transition Initiative. Outside of my work there, I'm very active in political stuff in Boston at many different levels. I chair the um, Issues Committee, also the Elections Committee, and I'm on the board of a group called Progressive Massachusetts, and also serve as the secretary of the political committee for the Massachusetts Sierra Club. And also, and I'm also a, a ward committee chair here in Boston uh, for one of the more progressive and independent wards in the city. They vary quite a lot. And I've been you know, pretty much, I got into politics originally through environmental activism in high school and college, and have been kind of a a perpetual campaign volunteer since 2012. Pretty much almost any election cycle was probably doing something for the for the past eight years. So I, I keep myself busy as I, as I like to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I can say sim- similarly, my entryway into politics was trying to figure out how to fix environmental problems and it seems like all roads lead back to there. So, as an editor and a voracious reader, uh, I know you read all kinds of interesting stuff. Is there anything interesting you've read recently that, that you'd like to share something about? Yes, I can I can highlight a few books, and I won't I won't go too long on each one because I probably could. But when I was looking at my Goodreads account, I think Goodreads is a great website, so I'll put in a plug for that. Is how I remember what I read recently. <laughs> Ruha Benjamin's Race After Technology: Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code was a was a really well written book. It's short, so if you want something that's insightful but not long, it, it's a great it's a great read, and it's looking at If people are familiar with the term algorithmic inequality, something that's come up in discussions recently of the ways that given how technology is ultimately made by people and the algorithms that I've used are made by people and people are kind of almost inherently biased and are in part of a, a society with various kind of prejudices and stereotypes in it, the way in which that manifests in technology that people perceive as being neutral but in its impact isn't. So it's a, it's a, it's a very well-written and short book, surveying how that plays out across areas, as well as having some reflections on what would like an anti-racist technology look like. So I would definitely put in a, a plug for that. Connor Doherty's Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America, I thought was a, a sharp look at the housing crisis in San Francisco. It kind of focuses on a number of different people. And what I thought, what I liked about the book in particular is that so if anybody's had to deal with housing politics in any any city in the U.S., it, there's, you tend to have a strong YIMBY versus NIMBY dynamic, even if sometimes the NIMBY accusations are false against people who are opposing. That ultimately you do you need both um, more housing being built, but also protections for those already there through like things like rent control, for instance, because a, pol- a policy like rent control and other tenant protections will not address the issue of needing more more housing mm-hmm. like they won't they won't add anything to it but you will not be able to protect you can't prevent displacement by just building more houses 
And if you want a holistic housing policy that's able to address those, you do need to use multiple tools in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. And so I, and I thought that the bill did a good job of that, as well as it focused a lot on, on kind of the quote, quote, EMB, yes, in my backyard activists in San Francisco, that I thought had a, had a, a solid, like critically sympathetic take to them is how I often described it, where he agrees with kind of the general goal that like the city does need to increase its housing stock, particularly around issues about the problems with single family zoning, mm -hmm. but that it can't fix everything in the housing crisis. And that there often ends up being blind spots uh, in, how, in how people in that, kind of in that group view uh, politics in general and how to win allies in, in, in pursuit of their cause. So I thought I, and I thought it was a I thought it was a really well-rounded book in that respect. One and then one other thing that I read uh, recently, where I mainly read a collection of short stories for one short story. It was Ursula Le Guin's The Wind's Twelve Quarters. Mm -hmm. I actually wasn't a huge fan of most of the short stories in the book, mm -hmm. but I did like the one that I read it for, mm -hmm. which was the book The Ones Who Walk Away from Momelas, mm -hmm. um, which I think many people are at least somewhat familiar with. Uh, which has to do with, and I'll, I'll read the quote because I think it was a, it's a very compelling quote from William James, which is the kind of inspiration for the, for the short story, which he fleshes out this idea. Or if the hypothesis were offered, offered us of a world in which Messrs. Fourier and Bellamy's and Morris's utopia should all be outdone and millions kept permanently happy on the one simple condition that a certain lost soul on the far at, far off edge of things should lead a lonely life of torture, or should lead a life of lonely torture, what except a skeptical and independent sort of emotion can it be, which would make us immediately feel, even though an impulse arose within us, to clutch at the happiness so offered, how hideous a thing would be, its enjoyment, when deliberately accepted at the fruit of such a bargain. And I think that's a really compelling quote, just to think about so much in, uh, like the political system and economic system in general about the way, even if it doesn't deliver that full happiness, about the kind of, the often terrifying sacrifices and injustices that lay on the grounds for the, for the, for like the satisfaction or well-being of others. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and the need to create a system that doesn't depend on that. Yeah, one of, one of my favorite reads, a great, um moral ethical dilemma about, you know, is it, is it worth the, the happiness of everyone to make one suffer horribly? And uh, yeah. And I, I, cause it's a really good, cause it's something that really does raise excellent moral questions. And I think it even kind of raises well that there's a certain tendency, I think that uh, kind of those of us on the left can have toward a certain crude utilitarianism mm -hmm. and the book, and the book makes you really grapple with that. Yeah of whether or not like there are things that like that saying that like the happiness of everybody else just simply can't rely on mm -hmm. thank you for sharing great stuff yeah no problem. so uh next up i wanted to ask about what kind of interesting projects or other work um you're up to these days what, what how are you trying to change the world yeah so in terms of things that i've been on busy with most recently a lot of that has been uh since Massachusetts's state primary is Tuesday, September 1st, I've been doing a fair amount of campaign volunteering. The one that I've spent mo probably the most time of different campaigns over the past few months would have been uh, Senator Ed Markey's re-election campaign here in Massachusetts. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, it's the, it's the primary between incumbent Senator Ed Markey and Congressman Joe Kennedy. And it's kind of, as somebody who's a fan of primaries in general, because I think that they help hold elected officials accountable, 
this was like the rare example of a primary that I kind of wish didn't have to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that I could focus on other other primaries where the challengers were actually better than the incumbents. Yeah. Uh, because it creates a, a kind of this kind of amusing dynamic in which those of us in the progressive space who are typically used to like wanting challengers to incumbents mm-hmm. are actually solidly behind the incumbent in this case because of Ed Markey's kind of like solid record, especially when it comes to environmental issues. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I discovered that, let's say if we elected a Joe Biden and Kamala Harris ticket this fall, and, and that you have the, uh, the the potential, and let's say Democrats take the Senate and like with all the, all of the kind of possible internal contradictions and uh, whatever let's say, Ed Markey's the type of person that I would want helping helping to create the climate policy or having a say at the table in that because it's something that he's been working on for decades. And it's one thing that if we do, if we are so fortunate to have a democratic presidency and democratic Congress, that's something that they need to take on really fast because Absolutely. we're screwed. <laughs> Assume you've got two years, right? What was that? Assume you have two years to get something important done. Exactly. Uh, and, and exactly, so that you can't count on this uh, on waiting for too long. And like, as the science shows, it's really this decade. This decade will be a determining one, and whether or not, like the rest of the century, will be viable. And so, somebody like Ed Markey, who has a history of advocacy and, and, and a deep knowledge on that front, is something I think is really important to keep in the U.S. Senate. Mm-hmm. When Joe Kennedy really hasn't shown himself to be particularly outspoken on that many issues, or kind of much of a proactive leader in, in Congress and views the seat as mainly kind of almost like a family dynastic thing. It's kind of a weird kind of case where like say the challenger is not really this like progressive upstart, but somebody from like a well-established political family mm-hmm. in the state, or also like one of the best known political families in the country. So that kind of scrambles traditional uh, understandings of primaries. But I've been active on that. I've also been volunteering for various uh, state representative candidates Mm-hmm. trying to either win open seats or flip or, or like primary incumbents for the Massachusetts State House. Massachusetts has a, I'll call it a strange situation where our state Senate is 90% Democratic and our state House is 80% Democratic, yet every session they still manage to leave a lot of important legislation on the table. <laughs> and they're, they're in general fairly conservative, not like not conservative in the way that say like the Alabama legislature is conservative, but conservative in the respect that they're, they don't like actually doing things that much mm-hmm. and that they tend to like bills will often get watered down and we're typically not the state that's actually leading. And I think often California, even not since it got full democratic control or since they got full democratic control, you often see Washington or Colorado. Uh, doing doing significant things. Uh, sometimes Hawaii, where like they don't even know if there are any Republicans anymore in the Hawaii uh, <laughs> state, state government. I know as of like, I think like not too long ago it was 100% Democratic, which just means that all the conservatives run as Democrats. Uh, been working on primaries there. Our legislative session ended on July 31st, although they they did vote to extend it, uh, mainly because of the budget, because of the expectation that they'll have a massive revenue loss due to COVID, and they're they're kind of holding out against hope that they'll get they'll be saved by the white knight of the federal government with more aid, which I'm not particularly, I don't really count on the good graces of the Trump administration and the Republican Senate to provide that aid, (laughs) Uh, rather than them needing to just actually grapple with the fact that they'll have to raise taxes on those who most afford to pay more taxes 
uh, and have also been involved with various issue campaigns in our legislature. It, it's it, one thing that's been depressing is the, the legislature's failure to take action on a few bills around immigrants' rights. One, uh, making sure that state and local law enforcement aren't deputized to ICE, and one, making sure that immigration status is not a barrier uh, to obtaining a driver's license. And those have, those have, although they had got further uh, than they have in the past, they've, they've been held up for quite a while. And if, if the four years of the Trump administration come and go without the Massachusetts, without the overwhelmingly Democratic Massachusetts legislature taking any action to support immigrants' rights, mm-hmm. that's just damning. That's a damning statement on the legislature. Yeah. And also, once the, um, as police reform and accountability and uh, it became an increasing issue over the past few months, had also through uh, Progressive Mass been involved in lot kind of pushing the legislature to pass something something like as strong as you can get out of them on this, uh, especially to add counter pressure when like every cop and every cop's mother, like mother, spouse, and however many children were calling the legislature and saying how they would lose their homes if you reformed qualified immunity, which is like a blatant lie and misconstruction of what uh, limiting it would actually do. But it's it's just kind of an insight into uh, the problem with how one of the like a particularly terrible force in municipal and state politics is so well organized. Well, I, I appreciate you holding their feet to the fire because I mean, there's so much intellectual brain power, um, progressive brain power in, in that state, and it, it would be nice to see see the, the government actually taking it and doing something more with it. So, thank you for right. for, for trying. So, next next up. <laughs> this is the fun one. Uh, this follows nicely. What, what's your assessment of U.S. politics and the economy at this moment? Yeah, so one thing that I'll, I'll start with this that, that fascinates me is that, and I don't know if this is still the case now, but in a number of surveys when people are asked uh, whether Donald Trump or Joe Biden would be better for different air, issue areas, that Donald Trump still manages to like, you still have a sizable percentage of people say that, yeah, Donald Trump is He's, he's the good one on the economy, which makes no sense if you actually look at what's happened in the U.S. economy, considering how it's tanked with like record high unemployment in recent months. And like the fact that with the kind of expanded unemployment benefits expiring, that like the disaster that that's going to wreak, when it, especially when it comes to the ability of people to afford things as basic as rent or any type of consumer spending, which consumer spending itself has also fallen significantly because people aren't going out. Like our, our economy shouldn't be reliant on consumer spending as much as it is, but it is, but it is now. Uh, and if people aren't going out to buy stuff, if they're not going out to eat, they're not going out to events, like that means that the economy is doing terribly, which it has. So it's been fascinating about that. And I would I'd particularly love to see focus groups about why people uh, think that way. I know Republicans think that way because the, in part because the stock market is doing fine. It's one thing that's been, uh, that I found disappointing about how earlier this year when Congress did pass a kind of large an amount, uh, but probably not as extensive as it should have gone in when it actually did, a relief package around COVID. And Democrats were able to give like an almost no strings attached corporate bailout to Republicans without asking for as much as they could have could have potentially gotten out of it, because once Walsh, once the like the Fed was able to help keep uh, companies well flush with cash, and the stock market rebounded, rich people don't see a problem, and Republic rich people don't see a problem with the economy. Republicans don't see a problem with the economy because it's working fine for them. Mm-hmm. Everybody else, <laughs> it's an issue. 
particularly given the fact that like m- m- many of the jobs lost earlier this year aren't going to be back yet. If they're back yet, you have the issue of people being brought to work probably without proper protection and the risk, as you've seen with like the reopening of like indoor dining at restaurants during a global pandemic, that things just get like things just get exacerbated again. Uh, and that so I think the one thing that's been particularly unfortunate to watch is the number of governors in the U.S. who listen to a kind of a, a business line of the need to quote unquote reopen the economy. Yeah. But the problem being is that the places that have successfully been able to control the pandemic, a place like New Zealand, for instance, had a pretty strong lockdown. And like they just had, I think, three new identified cases and they just put everything on lockdown again. Yeah. And kind of knew that if you wanted to actually survive this, you need to have really strong measures mm-hmm. before, so that you can fully contain it, so that you can have things, uh, so that you can get back to maybe a better version of normal afterwards, right? Because the normal before wasn't itself great. The U.S. doesn't get that. Mm-hmm. That where most governors, because of being afraid of probably the loss of tax revenue or the, or the like, kind of lobbying from businesses that were uh, were kind of upset about the loss of their loss of uh, pro- revenue and profit, decided to start like allowing many industries to come back to come back open. But that's as we've seen in a number of states. After that happened, the the COVID cases ticked back up again. And so you're creating a situation which that desire for a faster quote unquote reopening just ends up leading to the problem lasting longer, which is, and it seems how like all of this will last like to next year. I know that there are many companies that aren't planning to have people work in person yet into next year. And, and, and even as you think, think ahead about the various ways in which in which kind of ha- the, the current situation of people largely staying at home and being advised to do so in many places not being open. One thing I, I occasionally wonder about is how badly that will end up hitting the retail sector around the holiday season. Just because it's like a sector that does like department stores, the, the ones that haven't managed to close already given the movement of so many sales online, they do most of their business in <laughs> the, at the end of the year. And so the question is like, what what is that end up doing for them? Or even let's say the restaurants and small businesses now, how many of them are actually in a position to weather being shut down for that long, as long as the time that as they might need to, which wouldn't be a problem if the federal government was actually willing to offer support to help people, help people actually keep people, to make it so that people can feel fully secure staying home and the businesses can be okay staying shut which would be like what a logical response would be from a federal government that can also one that can print its own own money Uh, would be to help try to fund that, to to fund, uh, to provide the necessary funds for a lockdown uh, rather than create a situation where people feel compelled uh, to open open things back up. And it's one of those cases where you have those back earlier when you had those like kind of bizarre protests often of right-wingers asking, demanding things to be opened up and they're often terrifying and often the people blatantly, blatantly racist. But the one thing that's like, that you can see is that there is actually like a real problem that if you were a small business owner, you probably, you might not have the cash reserves to stay like, to stay closed for that long. And the government isn't, if the government's not doing anything to help you, your logical response will be like, well, let me open up. And it's kind of, so it's gonna kind of highlights the need for like the government to do more 
but not to open things back up. <laughs> and yeah, I, I, the thing that strikes me more than anything else is the long-term uncertainty of it all, of not knowing when the general world, the general like world of going places on a regular basis uh, will, will set up. And when that does manage to happen, what places will still be there, but which ones will be able to weather weather everything, especially when it comes how, as, as well as, and one thing that's been pointed out, I know Senator Elizabeth Warren has uh, talked about this some, is the risk of monopolization being a result of this, because if it's difficult for a small business to stay afloat, or a small, uh, non-chain non restaurant to stay afloat, it's not as difficult for a large, a large chain or a large company that probably has a better uh, kind of cash reserves. And they'll, they'll weather it fine. Yeah. Uh, and, and they'll probably be able to navigate getting money out of the federal government fine. And if the smaller ones go into, are at risk of going under, they could just be gobbled up. And so you'll have even like larger corporate behemoths with like even less accountability than before. So it's a, it's a rather depressing prospect. You know, in the, uh, I mean, the, given the concentration of wealth that's already there, and if we're going to, you know, turn the screws on that even harder, it is um, not not a uh, exciting prospect. Yeah, and especially because when it comes to like the concentration of wealth, where we see the statistics about how a number of the like the, our like our billionaires have gotten richer during this, and while everybody else has, has for the well, where many people have seen a loss of income. I'm, I've been fortunate enough not to not be, uh, to been, been fine during this. But when many people are losing their jobs or even like, or maybe having to go part-time on a job that they had or having difficulty finding one if they're looking for, for that at the same time for people to be even growing in their extreme wealth is a rather, kind of a rather abhorrent thing and kind of a rather a damning statement on the, the current economic system. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, um, and I guess I'd hesitate to blame our uh, political leadership for that outcome because the, I don't really think there's any sort of plan. It's just sort of the the one thing that I think I feel that maybe they're trying to do is hold on to the current system. That um, if we yeah. allowed, if we allowed people to take six months off or four months off, and they were just fully taken care of for all that time instead of just getting one check. Um, that after a while, people would be like, well, wait a minute, we've just shut down 80% of our economy and everyone's still being fed and everyone still has their right. um, Why do we all have to go back to work so that we can load somebody's pocket other than my own? That's that's the one question that yeah. that's, if that's part of what's driving this um, horrific response. I think that's definitely true just because for the most, for like, from like a, a business owner's perspective, one, one goal is to make sure that you do still have that kind of that power vis-a-vis -vis employees at the workplace, and so being able to bring them back uh, it is kind of is necessary for that power vis-a-vis uh, -vis employees to exist, as well as kind of building up companies, even like say people's relationship to the government. If the if you're basically saying that, well, actually, no, the government can spend a lot of money on things and can actually do this and can do that. Why don't we do it normally? Yeah. Why? Why are we only uh, if, we're, if we can and if we can spend big, uh, as the and the federal government did put a lot of money, even a lot of a lot of way too much of that went to corporations. If we're able to spend big, why aren't we spending big on social on social necessities? And I, and I think that that's kind of drives some of the attitude of like let's get this over with, but ultimately like unintentionally perhaps elongating like prolonging the problem.
That, that reminds me of a lot of the responses I've heard from, uh, from Joe Biden to the pandemic. Everything he seems to want to do as far as the pandemic is just temporary solutions to get us through this. But they're the kind of things that if we actually implemented and left in place, I believe would leave us with a better society. But there's absolutely no desire there for um, yeah. solutions. Yeah, it's the time for the discussion of like, may, rather than having that like one-time pay, one-time payment um, for a, of like a economic stimulus or economic security, like you could just give people money, find a way of giving more people more money regularly, mm-hmm. given how poverty is, is still uh, far too high in this country, and the and the poverty level itself is, is set somewhat artificially artificially low, as well as the fact that the one thing that you even are realizing is how. Uh, is the way that it questions the necessity or non-necessity of much of much of economic activity. Because if you were able to guarantee people's economic security with economic output as a whole being down, it raises the question of how necessary much of that is anyway. Uh, and that, that was kind of that discussion that we were seeing at, toward the beginning of this and, and like in, the, in the spring about like who are our essential workers and why aren't a number of these essential workers being, being treated as well as uh, like as well as they are given their social necessity. Yeah, and, and in the context of climate change, why are we doing all the stuff that's not, that's not essential? Exactly, and that, that's the thing, because given climate change showing that we will need to have, uh, we need to draw down our environmental footprint, and part of that will be not doing some of the economic activity that's actively harmful, and some that's just simply unnecessary. It actually does show that like, because that's one thing that we have seen from this, of, of like better, um, that like, the, the places that had cleaner air because of the, the rollback of, of, of driving and the rollback of, of manufacturing, et cetera. And the question is, how can we take the good that, like the, those glimmers of, uh, of, let's say, of goodness uh, and all of that, that in, in a very unfortunate situation and try to keep them and make sure all the bad things go away, uh, which is one of those uh, perpetual uh, dilemmas of how, how to how to be able to do that well tough question so we got, got another one for you here that uh a following question that's um equally messy one do do you think the u.s will hold elections and if so will they be clean yes to holding elections i, I do think that will happen it is difficult to formally change them the one thing that's kind of an amusing thing to note that even if, if there were elections not to be held right which and i believe that they will for various sets of, uh, reasons, the president would be Pat- would be Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy as of next year, uh, because if there's no if there were no elections, mm-hmm. the the like Trump Trump his term in office ends that you are no longer president right beyond beyond a certain date in January. If there are no elections for for the U.S. House, there is nobody in the U.S. House. Like so, the president vice presidency they end. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cabinet, like how cabinet stuff would theoretically expire as well. And then the, no, if there are no elections for U.S. House, there's nobody in the U.S. House. And if there are no elections for any of the Senate races currently, then none of those senators are reelected. They don't keep their seat without the election. And you end up with a much smaller U.S. Senate where there are more Democrats than there are Republicans, given how many Republican seats are up this year. And the uh, senator, uh, Pro tem, the Senate president pro tem, Pat Leahy, would end up becoming president. So like, better not to have to go through that complicated of a, <laughs> of a process, although it's comforting to note that like, 
I, Patrick Lee, he's a decent enough per, per, person that I could, I could live with being, stumbling into being president in a, in a disaster. Um, the, the real concern, though, is, is that, that there will be uh, malfeasance and various types of efforts by Republicans to try to meddle with the, meddle with the functioning of the proper functioning of the election. It's what we've been seeing recently with Donald Trump trying to mess with the Postal Service. Something that Republicans have done, and often sometimes Demo Democrats too, uh, with things around privatizing the Postal Service and making it more difficult for them to work. Trump doesn't like vote by mail at all, even though he seems to have no problem with absentee voting, and they're the same. But, and I think it's less of a concern from him about thinking that if people could vote by mail that he would lose, although that's probably a share of it. That's voting by mail is not inherent, does not inherently help either party, according to studies. Uh, but as part of a general desire to sow the seeds of doubt in the legitimacy of the election. Yeah. More than that itself. Uh, especially when it could become for calling late ballots that get, that are kind of postmarked by election day, but maybe come in later and uh, aren't legitimate. And you'll have a case where the count on, a, because of the number of mail-in ballots, the, the vote totals on election night won't be final. And he'd want to be able to, like the, he would want to be able to mess with having a having a lot of ballots not in yet mm -hmm. also enables him to, to mess with that because I wouldn't be shocked if those who submit their ballots in earlier tend to be older and and probably because of that somewhat more conservative. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that in general studies show that people who vote by that older voters are more likely to take advantage of vote by mail, uh, whereas younger voters are more likely to vote in person, especially when you have different populations of marginal voters, where the main goal is to even get them to show up at all in-person voting is essential on that front. But and you'll also have other efforts that where Republicans have tried to make voting by mail a more difficult thing. I think even Democrats, I don't think, have been do doing that great of a job in different states where places where Democrats have full control and they could just mail everybody a ballot, still choosing not to, uh, and often relying on an overly burdensome process where you mail people applications to apply for a ballot and so do more mailings than you really need to have. But then you, you also have the existing forms of voter disenfranchisement that already exist, like the states that have voter ID laws that are actively, basically try to create an additional hurdle for people to exercise uh, their right to vote. And other kind of the general ways in which people can be, the, like the difficulty of even voting on a Tuesday is a deterrent for many people, as well as the general, and I think that even another general problem that that's, a bit, a few steps above, and almost a meta way, is Republicans' desire to make Republicans' desire to make the government not run well is its own form of voter disenfranchisement. Because if you're trying to make things not work for people at all, it reduces that sense of political efficacy, the belief that participating in the political system means anything at all, and that you can actually do anything by engaging. So having like, it's like having a poorly run postal service for instance, like that helps like so people's doubt about the ability of government to function well, which mm -hmm. makes you sour on the idea of like a, a more robust public service driven government or even or even the idea of participating in much in like the democratic process at all. So, uh, so I see a lot of that at, at work and how 
and what to expect in the next few months. And I think the Democrats, the Democrats in Congress need to be much stronger about fighting for like, fighting for election funding. They got some of it in the CARES Act earlier this year, not nearly enough. And, and states will need money, especially when it comes to how many ballot, how many people will be sending in mail-in ballots uh, than ever before. And states do need a solid amount of money for election administration. I would like to see more state, one thing that's like a, almost a bipartisan form of voter disenfranchisement is the number of states that don't offer election day registration, um, which is, it, it's not, we, we don't have that here in Massachusetts. But if you think about a, the, a scenario in which eviction, evictions are likely to be more common, um, given given the housing instability caused by COVID for people who if you don't have a paycheck coming in, it's more difficult to afford your rent. Uh, so you have, you have that turmoil in people's residential stability can easily make it so that it's, people will have moved close to an election and we should make moving close to an election a source of disenfranchisement. It'll also be interesting to see how what happens in terms of trying to make sure that college students are able to vote because it's difficult enough to get them to vote when they're all on campus and they're around their other friends and we'll have that present. Maybe they'll vote in higher rates when they're at home with their parents and their parents actually are <laughs> telling them that they need to vote. Maybe their parents will be a good influence on them, but it's still a difficult thing. Mm -hmm. uh, to think about where you don't have for the most because as many colleges are going uh, going fully virtual uh, and I would expect by the November election all of them will be <laughs> the ones that think that they're reopening will have realized what a terrible idea that was yeah sadly I think you're right there let's uh let's set aside the um, the the system let's say the system doesn't work let's say we vote Biden wins maybe it's a close election Trump claims that there was cheating and he actually is the winner and it's down and and then you know I've read some things recently where everything I've read people are confident that the system would work at that point that the rules that are in place would keep him from basically grabbing the reins and I'm I'm honestly given given what's happened over the last four years I'm not certain that the system is going to work I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts yeah, I, I, I would be skeptical. I'm not as confident in our institutions as some of the people. Like, the Supreme Court is a blatantly partisan institution. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could count on John Roberts wanting to believe in his, like, the institutionalism that he has along with his conservatism, which I think is people mistake, people mistake institution, a certain type of institutionalism for moderation. Yep. I think with him where he's, like, hard-wing ideologically, like, hardline ideologically conservative, but views it differently than the other judges in which he wants to make sure that his, that he forces through things that are incredibly conservative on what he believes is solid legal footing. Yeah. In order to build on, uh, to create like even more such hardline conservative things in the future rather than, and like we're lucky that the Trump administration is too lazy in a lot of things <laughs> of what they've been <laughs> trying to fight with the Supreme Court on, like it's, it's a blessing that they're too lazy to put together good cases or good defenses, but that's, but like the Supreme Court, like the, the 2000 election in which Al Gore did win the popular vote and it, like the Florida was a complete mess. It's like the Supreme Court basically gave the election to George W. Bush on a partisan majority, mm -hmm. uh, which it doesn't inspire much faith in them as an institution, as well as theoretically if to have the, um, to have a, a stable and secure transfer of power, you do need to make sure that the, let's say the the forces of 
established power around, um, let's say like, or a force, like a military actually believes in that. Mm-hmm. And I, I haven't seen recent polling about how much of the military is planning to vote for Trump or not. I wouldn't, wouldn't be shocked if a fair amount of them are, different that like all the police are probably voting for Trump, or at least mm-hmm. probably 90% of like white male police officers are voting for Donald Trump. Yeah. That you would theoretically need to make sure that you have their buy-in. That's because if you look at any states that when governments do collapse, it's the governments will collapse to any type of revolution and often when they lose the faith of the military mm-hmm. uh, is one of the, the main points rather than if the military is backing somebody and helps them to stay in power. So that I'm not, I'm not doomsday-ish, mm-hmm. all right? I do have a certain, like an instinctive, in part it's like I, I don't have the, I don't have a very visual imagination, mm-hmm. which is good because it makes me not be able to visualize impending doom. Uh, I, I do. Like I, have a visual, <laughs> I have a visual memory of yeah. things in the past, but I don't, I, it's kind of a weird way in which I'm not good at visualizing motion. Mm-hmm. I've, I'm good, I have like a somewhat photographic memory where I can, I can envision stills, but I can't envision motion mm-hmm. very well. And I think it's helpful in the sense of not being able to envision what catastrophe looks like. <laughs> so it makes me a little bit less doomsday-ish on things, but I don't think that the U.S.'s institutions are necessarily as strong as some people might like to believe that they are. Yeah. I mean, I, my, my, I kind of played through the scenarios that were laid out from some uh, some recent wargaming around the, the elections, and my, my, my concern was that the people that were in that room all had similar knowledge sets and similar beliefs that these institutions will work. And my, my concern is that you, you just you know, you go through failure point after failure point after failure point in the systems. And then the question basically falls on, will the police and military uphold the, uh, you know, our, our constitution and, and move out that president or will they go, well, what's on the table? You know, and I mean, I, I, hope, yeah. not, I hope we don't get there. And I hope that everyone that's, you know, that have, would have to make those decisions would make the ones that I would want. But I mean, I don't think there's anything systemic there. I, that's that's yeah. a matter of personal interests and, that's scary. And that's one of the things why like, I would hope that Biden's margin is large enough that I could be easily called on election night, which is asking for a lot given how many votes might not be counted yet by then. But it would be nice for it to be called before it gets to that point. Yeah. Uh, because like, I can imagine a scenario in which like a state of like state like Arizona uh, has Trump leading on, on election night, but loses a week later after they finish counting votes because they take a while to count votes as they as you saw like back in um, 2018 when um, Martha McSally was up on election night by Kirsten Sinema, not that she's that great of a Democrat, uh, ultimately won because a lot of the later ballots were Democratic ballots. So like that's something possible. I would just like like for it to not have to get to that point. I'd like a race that's called early. Like if, if, if Florida and Pennsylvania and North Carolina all go Democratic and then Michigan and Wisconsin, like you can call it that night probably. So I just hope that the lead is strong enough that it can be called early. Yeah, if that does it, if that happens, the um, it's a very different set of circumstances. I, I still think, I, I don't expect Trump to walk away. Um, I expect him to go be, be drug yeah. out and screaming. Yeah, so. to go down, yeah, that he'll have to be dragged out the door. Yeah, so I, I expect. As well as, what's that? As well as I can see him just trying to do various types of damage on the way out. Oh, for sure. 
I, that that I, I think we, we will definitely have to deal with regardless, but I'm just kind of hoping that we get the kind of outcome in the election that you just suggested, and that if he tries yeah. to play games at that point, that you know he just gets run out quickly, but uh, just not certain yet. Okay, well, um, I've, I've been taking a lot more of your time than I expected. Um, <laughs> no worries, it's been fun. Yeah, I got a, I got a handful of additional questions. Let's try moving on. Um, what what are the what do you think are the core challenges in the U.S. for politics, or or what is the root problem that that you would want to address to to help send us in a better direction? That's a good question. Um, in terms of the root problems of the U.S., I'd say I'd say a, I'd say a few things are things that would need to be addressed for things to be better in the U.S. One, I would like to see, like, this doesn't change everything. I would like to see better election laws and encourage participation. You can't solve everything via, via just voting, but, it, but it's a tool and it's an important one. And we need to have a system that encourages democratic participation more than we do. Uh, that you also need to have much stronger unions in the U.S., uh, which is, and it's one thing that's actually, it's an, it, the one thing that's kind of always interesting to me is when people talk about what, about the U.S. versus versus European countries, uh, because you'll, people will often talk about the Democratic Party in the U.S. being akin to a center-right party uh, in Europe. And the one point I, I or tend to differ with that is I believe that they're more akin to like a grand coalition government in other countries, where the entire political spectrum uh, outside of the like resurgent far right uh, in many European countries could safely could be find a home in the Democratic Party in the U.S. Uh, so rather than it being uniquely the center right of a European country, that the center left, given like the neoliberalization of a lot of center left European parties, isn't that great, great either. But what, what European countries have uh, is the fruits of a once strong labor movement that isn't always that strong now, but had was able to get a number of gains in the past that have a good political lock in. That's like when you think of like the NHS in the UK. In, to, in, in the UK of today, could you create that? No, it would not happen, right? That, that's not where either the, the Labour Party is not that good uh, <laughs> to create that. The Tories wouldn't do it, but you have that because of a, of a historical legacy of that. And I think so if you are to kind of be able to get some of those kind of in, important like robust public services, you do need a stronger labor movement in the country as well as better labor laws that actually encourage that, which we don't have. And not given let's say like right quote unquote right to work laws in, 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 in states and other kind of federal laws that limit the ability of unions to, to form or, or, or take action, I think is, is a major roadblock to, to both the, the need kind of the, the is roadblock in the push for robust public services as well as something that helps make inequality worse in the U.S. as unions have often been a force as like an organized force to help kind of compress that inequality because if you're going to have some counterbalance to organized money in the U.S. you do need organized people and unions have have been able to organize people through one of the, the kind of most obvious ways of doing so is through the workplace and have a certain critical mass. And so I think that's a problem. That's, that's something that needs to be fixed. I do think that the, the amount of money in the U.S. political system is a major problem. I don't think, I think it's often discussed in a way that limits, um, that, that's incomplete. So if we, the, the U.S. would benefit from like various various legislation to control the, the ability of people to effectively buy elections. 
right? But that's not the only reason why politicians do what they do. They're not that cheap of dates, right? That they're not just doing everything somebody says because of the money that they get from them. They also do it because of one, their own social circles. So that, that also speaks to the need for diversifying who's running for office. That when all of your friends think it's, when all of your friends are very, very rich, those are the concerns that you're used to hearing. So then you're, that shapes your worldview. And um, that that's something that studies have even shown about the way in which parties are often reflective of the, the richer uh, members of the party. It's why Democrats, one of the reasons why Democrats care so much about the deficit is that if, all, if you're, even your social circles, not just your donors, are very rich people, rich people love caring about the deficit, uh, I mean, much more than they like caring about inequality. Uh, as well as the problem with uh, that you can never fully get money out of politics as long as there's high inequality, which is kind of the issue as well, right? Because as long as there's, there's let's say, organized money, it will have a say in politics, which is kind of how you can see that contrast between, say, the U.S. and Europe is that, like, yeah, European political parties still do the biddings of capital all of the time, uh, even if they have a, even if those even if, let's say, the kind of the finance industry or other large uh, large sectors don't have that much of it, an electoral influence, that they're not as potent of actors on that front, their ability to threaten uh, governments uh, is still high because if they're saying, well, we can just pull our money and leave, uh, it, it is always a threat that governments are often willing to not uh, call their bluff on. So that, that if we ever do want to make sure that we can, so it kind of speaks to the need for addressing the vast inequality exists. And it's, it's a kind of a chicken egg thing that you're not going to get a good politics out of good inequality, but you can't really reduce inequality without good politics. But to some extent, labor is an important part of that, uh, of one organi- one thing that of like boosting something that's already there to, to address it. You would also, even for that to work well, also need to have a greater push within labor, taking climate change seriously. There are segments of labor that do, and I think that's really important uh, to recognize, but there also is, are segments of labor, particularly around the trades, that see a trade-off between jobs and the environment will often do the biddings of the extractive industries for which they work, rather than address the need to transition to a, like a just and sustainable economy in total. Um, I think there's a kind of, those are a few of the a main points. I think another kind of obstacle in general uh, is the difficulty for people to even figure out what's going on in politics. I think is an obstacle when media reporting, particularly when you get to state or local politics, is, is often very poor uh, and it's not even perfect. It's not even always that good on a national level as well. And it's very difficult for people to hold elected officials accountable to anything if they don't even know what they're doing. Yeah, I was just going to say the the media concentration in the U.S. and the ownership, it really um, creates a problem for state and local politics where you're getting limited information. It's greatly tilted. Uh, yeah. Huge problem. I, 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 you know, I watched the the Brexit stuff in, in the U.K. really closely. Yeah. In my book. And to see the shift in the media just in the last three or four years from when they ran the first election and there was a tilt in the in the coverage for just the the, the 2015 uk uh, elections and then the the brexit election that followed that but then the one they had last year 
for um, for leadership when Boris Johnson was basically burning the country down going into that. Yeah. And the coverage was so incredibly biased. The um, the Guardian, which you know you kind of expect to be the more progressive of of the the mainstream uh, media, was at best split. Um, yeah, from my, from my um, perception, it was really um, something to see to watch that. And and it, I mean, they went down in flames in that election. When I mean, what were what were you getting from Boris Johnson when everything he did was just a train wreck? Yeah, no, it was very striking to see the way in which um, because I remember I had read read the so I started reading the Guardian when I was at the London School of Economics back in 2011 to 2012, and. I think in part because of editorial changes that they've drifted to the right over the years. They're not like a conservative paper, yeah. but they really hated Jeremy Corbyn. And yeah. it was always very clear in their coverage. Uh, I played from many of the columnists, mm-hmm. which was always very striking because if you don't have, like you should never be like so like overwhelmingly pro any politician as a paper, mm-hmm. but it's just the way in which which issues are the ones that you deem the most important, which ones do you spend the most time on, which ones do you not think as being that important, and it was just really striking just how much negative press Labour had before that election really across news outlets, and how little criticism Boris Johnson actually faced. Yeah. And the, the one thing that I thought was really striking with that is that like there are like some of the anti-Semitism allegations against Labour I think are things that need to be taken need to be taken seriously. Sure. But the, it was always discussed in a way that ignores the fact that like a lot of Tories were anti-Semitic too. Sure. Or Islamophobic or racist, and that problem in the Tories never really got talked about much at all because it's something that like insofar as it's a problem it was often a problem with the political culture and society in, in many ways that's not unique to labor so it was always kind of I like to see this talked about as like this is a very unique to labor problem rather than a rather than a, a kind of british problem in many ways sure yeah i mean I, and and i think there there's we could go so deep into that um i i, I don't want to go there but just just quickly the um I remember Andrew Neil. He does the the interviews right before the elections with all the leading candidates, and he spent about a third of his interview. The first third of his interview with Jeremy Corbyn was all on anti-Semitism, and every time I've ever seen Corbyn asked about anti-Semitism, it's always like that is horribly wrong. We should not have it. We need to deal with it. You know those those kinds of responses, and always comes off as very believable to me. Absolutely, there you have a you have a party with that many members. You're going to have problems with with biases and racism, things like that. So yeah, that there were problems, sure, but that they spent all of that time with him, and and you know by the time they finally moved on to actual issues, I wondered how many people were still even watching. And then yeah, when, when they interview Boris Johnson, it's just you know softball after softball when the guy spent a day hiding in a refrigerator from reporters because he was so afraid of being asked questions. It was just, right. it, it was, it was just absurd. Yeah. yeah. No, it is embarrassing to watch. It also reminds me in terms of like bad media coverage of the 2016 US election here when Trump was given so much free media. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that, that could take us down into um, Facebook, the way that his kind of nonsense the algorithms preference that and and get, it gets replicated over and over and over whereas someone who's actually trying to share a platform and explain things is <laughs> going to get pushed down so mm-hmm. uh, 
a lot of problems. Um, so with, with that in mind, uh, having, having spoken about the problems and that, um, would like to ask you, what, what should we do to go in a better direction? What do you think individuals can do to help? Um, and what should they do to prepare themselves to, to like start making more of a difference? And because uh, I, I think we're at a point in, in my mind where it needs to be an all hands on deck thing. Like, yeah, wants to send us in a better direction, better start rowing because, you know, we, we're, we're not going in a better direction right now. Yeah, I would say I would encourage people to find out kind of organizations near them that are doing some of the work that they particularly want done, regardless of which issue it is that impassions them. Because on pretty much everything, there have already been people doing the work for a while, even if they, there's still so much work to be done. And rather than reinventing a wheel or anything, figure out who they are, plug in, and or if you, if you can donate time or if you can donate money, uh, getting involved is a really important important thing. I often say that 90% of politics is just showing up and that's true for politicians and it's true in like in an advocacy space as well of the, of the need to just have that kind of constant pressure involved with showing up. I think it's really important, important for people to do. So I'd say that I think it's also just good for people to get involved. Like I feel like this is almost like a liberal cliche of getting involved in local and state elections in addition to federal ones and paying attention to what happens at those levels because a lot of decisions do get made. Um, they get made with too few people, too, too few people watching. As well as kind of a general sense of vigilance of being able to be to follow actively what's going on and figure out what trustworthy sources are, as well as to be a critical news reader. It's one thing that I think not enough people really on any side of the political spectrum are, where you, it's very easy to have knee-jerk reactions to coverage, yeah. and important to actually make sure that you're reading things and thinking about, thinking about kind of what the implications are, what what what's the sourcing, how much like, and what all went into this piece before necessarily jumping into conclusions, as well as to like not. And yeah, as well as to kind of actually have that kind of thorough analysis and not have a, a knee-jerk desire to believe or disbelieve something based on the political convenience of it. Yeah, there's 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 so much these days that where you can kind of fall into a, a rabbit hole, especially in social media, where you you've got your tribe and they're sharing these things that are often from questionable sources. And one of the, one of the ideas that I've found to be really interesting um, recently is the idea of lateral reading, where you you force yourself to get outside of your comfort zone, um, your typical sources. You read an article yeah. and you're like, wow, but then wait a minute, let me check. Are, are other sources writing about this from different perspectives? What can I learn from these different perspectives? What can I triangulate and try to, how can I try to understand this better by getting these different perspectives instead of just trusting Yeah. This? I, I keep seeing like, um, I've seen a lot of family and friends back home who've shifted their politics in recent years. And, and in ways that I just don't understand. And, and it seems like there's, there's just very narrow feeds of information that have become trusted and, and that yeah. broaden that that would make a real difference. Yeah, no, because uh, when you can think of like the toxic influence that Fox News can have of people when that's like your primary news source. But there are even many across the political spectrum, there are there are news sources that are, aren't particularly credible. I don't really think any of the, the right-wing ones are credible, but there are some left-wing sources that people will share, even if articles that can be somewhat thinly reported. 
uh, as well as the tendency that people have uh, left, right, and center, uh, and I'm guilty of it myself, of <laughs> only reading a headline and yep. getting upset, having a conclusion based on something just on the headline alone, even though it's not even the writer, the writers don't choose their end headlines. And I think that's something that, I, I like actually reading stuff, is something that's good for all of us. Sure. Okay. That's kind of all the all the stuff that I had prepared for you. I have um, one curveball I'd like to throw at you. I know this isn't your sure. expertise or mine, but the uh, the ongoing pandemic. What 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 do you given what you've learned, what you've read? What do you think the U.S. ought to be doing to try to send us in a better direction? Because man, I'm I'm uh, I I would have come home and visited my family two months ago, and I couldn't. And now I don't know when I'm going to be able to come home, and it would be. Um, really nice to see us head in a better direction. So any thoughts on what yeah. we're trying to do? Yeah, so like from people outside, I, I would say you could still in terms of if there's work that can be done and making sure that family and friends in, in, in the U.S. don't go down terrible rabbit holes, always good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, in, in the way that it's to the extent that one can, uh, it can often be difficult. Uh, or even just offering support to organizations that are doing that are doing some of the critical work happening, especially I think of this year around like voter protection work happening yeah. or racial justice advocacy. Since no matter where you live, you can donate to them. You're limited if you're like in terms of donating to candidates, you can't donate to candidates if you're not a citizen. But no matter where you, uh, whether you're an expat or somebody from another country, you are able to donate to the, the nonprofit organizations or advocacy organizations doing work and helping to support helping to support those voices on the ground or, or like the if they're doing advocacy if they're doing direct service work is something that that would be really helpful yeah thank you i i, I greatly appreciate it and as, as always when i engage with you i learn quite a bit and thank you very much for for making time for me and, and sharing jonathan greatly appreciate it no problem thank you Thanks for listening to the Wicked Problems and Circular Systems podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, you can sign up for updates at wpcs.substack.com.